Church, let me invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. And we're going to begin in chapter 11 this morning. Genesis 11, verse 27. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page 8. And uh, if you're not used to using the Bible, uh, the large numbers that you'll see on the pages of your Bible are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to begin in chapter 11, verse 27. I remember when my parents would occasionally take me to church as a young man on Christmas and Easter, typically, and I, never, I could never find where we were supposed to be. So I, I hope that will help you as we look in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. While you're finding your way there, um, you did, as you came in this morning, uh, received an order of service, I trust. Uh, looks like something like this. And this is, of course, quite different than the uh, small magazine that you're used to receiving uh, every week as, as we come in. And uh, we're going to try this out for a little while. We, we recognize as a staff that uh, going to something a little, a little uh, less uh, large and involved will save us about $500 a month in staff hours and in printing costs. And, of course, you know we don't save our money. All the money that we have extra goes to missions, and so we're excited that the opportunity that presents us. And you might say, well, what about all the announcements? Where am I going to get the announcements? Well, if you don't know yet, uh, we, re- we send out a weekly email on Wednesday with a prayer guide and all the announcements, and it's very helpful, and it, um, certainly I hope you're, you're making yourself uh, available to that. If you're not, you can sign up in the book at the welcome desk and get on that email list, and, and some of you may say, well, I don't have email, and which I say, God bless you. Um, I think I, I envy you, and uh, I think that's fantastic, and what we, what we would do for anyone who wants is we have a printout of those announcement, that announcement emails printed out in a hard copy, that is on the welcome table. So if you show up on Sunday morning and say, I really need in my hand the announcements, well, you can grab one of those, and uh, we trust that will be a benefit to you. Uh, if you love this, uh, by the way, I, I'm certainly be pleased to receive those comments, and uh, if you have concerns, Pastor Josh is available. Um, so. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Hear now the word of God. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. 
Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And that, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Our Father, we're thankful for your word and that we can consider it this morning. I'm excited to do so. It's good to be back home here. It's good to be um, back with the people here in Hamilton Baptist Church. And it's uh, a delight to me and I hope to my brothers and sisters that uh, we get to hear from you this morning. My heart is hungry, Father. I hope it's true of those who gather. Our souls thirst for a word from our God. What a privilege it is to gather to worship the creator of all things today. And to call him Father because of Christ. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in 1982 that a man named Larry Waters uh, did something that would make him become later an internet legend. He went to the Army surplus store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. Inflating all 45, he attached them to a lawn chair, which he had anchored to the bumper of his Jeep. Then packing several sandwiches and a six-pack of Miller Lite and a pellet gun, he hopped onto the chair and cut his anchor, hoping to lazily float to the height of maybe around 30 feet and spend a couple hours over his backyard. So what could go wrong with this plan, right? Well, things did not go exactly as he had hoped. Rather than a leisurely ascent, his friends who were there at the time said he shot up like he was fired from a cannon. He didn't stop at 30 feet. He didn't stop at 300 feet. He didn't stop at 3,000 feet. Depending on the accounts, he stopped somewhere between 11 and 16,000 feet where he would drift for the next 14 hours, afraid to shoot any balloon lest he unbalance his chair. So he did the only thing that occurs to one in such a stressful situation. He drank his beer. (laughs) Eventually floated over LAX. There's no surprise he's from California, is it? Uh, uh, And then uh, LAX reported an unidentified flying object now 300 miles from where his journey began. A United Airlines pilot actually spotted him and radioed the tower saying, quote, I'm not sure how to report this. But I see what looks like a perfectly still figure lying in, is it a lawn chair? By the way, he has a rifle. LAX would soon send helicopters to investigate as night was falling and the offshore breeze was blowing lawn chair Larry out to sea. With a helicopter in pursuit, it finally caught up to him several miles out to sea. And once they realized that Larry was not dangerous, but simply a fool, They attempted a rescue. 
And you can imagine uh, it's going to be difficult for a helicopter to rescue a man floating with balloons ahead. In fact, the draft of the blades kept pushing Larry away. And finally, they positioned the helicopter several hundred feet above Larry, descended a cord to him, a rescue line in which Larry snagged, and they were able to pull him to rescue. Well, as soon as Larry returned to Earth, he was arrested for violating federal airspace. As he was led away in handcuffs, a reporter asked him, Why did you do it? Why did you do it? He responded, I just got tired of lying around. You ever feel like that? Not that you would float away, I trust, but do you ever get you ever feel like you're just tired of tired of this life? Just feel like I'm sitting around? Tired of paying bills, tired of fighting traffic, tiring of Monday mornings and doing the same old thing. You ever Ever in your heart kind of desire some type of adventure? You ever long for, God, will you, will you not make me more significant? I'd like to introduce you to a man of monumental significance. His name is Abram. God, of course, has used many people uh, over the years. I think of Augustine and Luther. I think of Peter and Paul. You think of Moses and David. All, of course, used mightily by God. I would suggest to you, however, that all of all those who lived, except for Jesus himself, none is probably more important than the man that we will study this winter and into the spring, a man we usually refer to as Abraham. Here he's called Abram. Don't, don't let that throw you off. God's going to change his name, and I'm sure I'm going to move back and forth unintentionally this morning. We're referring to the same guy, Abraham or Abram. In fact, the three major monotheistic faiths in the world, all, all, which account for more than half of the world's population, by the way, all trace Abram as the father of their faith. So even if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you want to understand human civilization, you might start with this man, Abram, who so many trace their lineage from. In fact, Abram is discussed in 11 of the New Testament books, but frequently spoken of by Jesus. Hebrews 11, of course, that great chapter which uh, records all, uh, all the heroes of faith. Most of the heroes get one verse. Moses would get six. Abraham would, re- would receive 12 verses to describe him. He says, life is incredible. His stature is unsurpassable. His impact is incalculable. And so I'm thrilled to be able to study his life from Genesis chapter, really chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 25. But as we even do in the, in the coming weeks, starting today, please understand that the story of Abram is not simply the story of, of this man, but it's more importantly the story of this man's God. And in the life of Abram, this is why it's exciting, is that we see how God plans to permanently deal with sin. In the life of Abram, we see how God intends to save, how God intends to redeem, how God intends to restore, how God intends to call us into redemption. Even as we see this call placed upon Abram today, we see Abram's called by God, and yet it's not just Abram's call, there's something of God's call in all of us found in these very verses. Now, of course, we're starting here at the end of Genesis 11. We need to get our bearings a little bit. 
you of course will remember in 2013, I preached Genesis 1 through 11. Now that's all fresh in your minds, I trust. Uh, if it is not, I trust it's, uh, you could access those sermons on the internet. Uh, but just to, to uh, fill, get us up to speed, to get us here to chapter 11, you know, of course, God in chapter 1 and chapter 2 creates everything. And the pinnacle of his creation would be those who bear his image, human beings, man and woman. Unfortunately, almost immediately after God and this great creation, humans begin to rebel against their creator. And we have one story after another of humanity rejecting God and rejecting God's way. So just a total open rebellion against God. And so we go from our first parents eating the forbidden fruits, and the very next they have children, and one brother rises up and kills his other brother. And we then have this man who boasts that he thinks Cain was, was bad. I'll kill anybody who just looks at me the wrong way. And then we see the whole world is filled with violence. God floods the world, starts over. This new start doesn't go so well, but the hero of that story gets drunk, um, naked and passes out in his tent, and then all the world unites together in a place called Babel or Babylon, and they decide we are going to become like gods, and we're going to make ourselves a great name. You see, it's just sin is ripping the world apart. Sin is, is the cause of all the troubles that they have and that we have. And Genesis, really Genesis 3 through 11, there's this, there's this question underneath it all. Will God deal with sin? Can we make our way back to God? Is there a solution? And it's with that question in mind we come to Genesis 12.1 and we read these words. Now the Lord said to Abram. See, Genesis 12.1 is the hinge on which history swings. Everything changes. This God shows up in order to deal with our rebellion and to provide for restoration. In fact, at this point, the whole focus of Genesis changes. From Genesis 1 through 11, it's really focusing on the world in a cosmic scale. And now in Genesis 12, the camera zooms in, if you will, to focus on this one man and his family in which the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament will follow. And it's through this man and through those who come after him that God gives this incredible promise there in verse 3. You see that at the end of verse 3 of chapter 12? And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it's those little, that little phrase is God's plan of redemption in a kind of a seed form, in a kernel form. In fact, John read for us this morning Galatians 3. You might, if you write in your Bible, you might even write next to verse 3, Galatians 3, 8. Because Paul, Paul says that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. You hear that? God, Paul says, that verse there, at the end of verse 3, that's the gospel. That's the kernel of God's plan to overcome our sin. That's the seed of the plan that God is going to do to restore us to a relationship with him. If you intend to read the Bible this year, some of you are going to read the whole Bible uh, this year, Genesis 12.3 is kind of your map to take you at least through the rest of the Old Testament. Of course, it all begins with this call, uh, call to Abraham. And it is, you will note, first of all, a call of grace. A call of grace. So let's look up in verse 27 of chapter 11. We see this genealogy here, don't we? Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram to Hor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of 
his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Ishka. So we're introduced here to this man, Terah. He has three sons. Our focus is going to be on one of them, Abram. By the way, in case you're interesting, interested, Haran, of course, dies early. The other son, Nahor, is the grandfather of Rebekah, which you'll find later, of course, in Genesis, won't you? So why is this genealogy here? What, 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 what do we learn from this? Well, one of the things we're learning, in fact, there's quite a number of genealogies in early Genesis. So one of the things we're, we're learning at this point is that God is presenting to us a problem that humanity is coming to, if you will, a, a dead end. Um, you, I, I mentioned that Genesis, early Genesis is quite often just a recurring story of sin. But there's this underlying theme of hope, isn't there? Because not only did Cain kill Abel, but there was a third son named Seth. And Seth and his line began to call upon the name of the Lord. And Seth led us to Noah. And Noah led us to Shem. And Shem led us to Terah. And Terah led us to Abram. But here's the problem. Is that Abram, along with his father, is a pagan man living in the city of God's judgment. You see, he's from uh, Ur of the Chaldeans. Chaldea is just Babylon. It's modern-day Iraq, by the way. Abraham's a Babylonian. Now, if you, if you look just back at the headings in your Bible, look in Genesis chapter 11, what, the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babylon, right? So he's living in the city of judgment. He's living in the city in which God, uh, God, God's people opposed him. And his father's name, Terah, means moon. Moon worship was prominent in Chaldea. In fact, we know they're pagans because we read in Joshua 24. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. They're idolaters. Which is why three generations later, Rachel from this family will steal her father's what? Household idols, right? Abram, along with his whole family, are polytheistic pagans. They worship the, the wrong gods. They worship the false gods. He's, he's in the family that was supposed to preserve the allegiance to the creator, and instead they have given themselves to idolatry. It's like there's one candle left to give light in this dark, dark world, and it is flickering out. And not just spiritually, by the way, but physically too, for you read in verse 30. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. There's no more family. There's no more foreseeable future for humanity other than darkness. There's no hope. And it's in light of that that we read Genesis 12, 1. Then, now the Lord said. Now the Lord said. God speaks. And what we learn here and really throughout the Bible, don't we, is that these massive obstacles are really nothing to God. These barriers, like barrenness, for instance, and paganism, it doesn't slow God down. In fact, they just seem like opportunities to display God's might. Just certainly opportunities to show that God's plan of redemption is entirely dependent upon God's power and God's pleasure and not our participation. In other words, it's all of grace. 
Abram is a pagan in a wicked city with a godless dad and a barren wife. There is nothing in this passage that seems to commend him to God. He's not seeking after God. He's making no effort towards God. God does not, therefore, survey the world and say, everybody's evil and wicked, but at least I got this man named Abram. I'm going to go with this guy. Rather, what God surveys the world and sees that they're they're all wicked, and he looks at Abram, and in his great sovereign choice, He says, I will save this man despite his sin and despite his hopelessness. And in fact, I will bless him so richly that through him, the entire world will be changed. Now, my friends, God, who did this thousands of years ago, still does this. He crosses into enemy lines and rescues people. That's my biography, that's, that's me, that's you, that's how you're saved. The Father reaches into the pit of sin and redeems us out of it, and that people will come around and say, you saved him? You saved him? Yeah, that's right, I saved him. And I can save you too. I can save anyone. And so he saves people like Abram, worshiping wrong gods. You, you, uh, usually the God in the mirror. My friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I think the life of this of Abram gives you hope. This man had no knowledge of God, yet God found him, God saved him, God calls him by grace. What that means is you don't need a godly family to be saved, nor is having a godly family enough. I mean, Abram is from the family of Shem. That's the godly line, and clearly it is not enough. I think of my own children. We worship as a family. We pray as a family. We, we, the, their parents put Christ before them, the best in which we can do. But unless my children respond to the call of God in their life, they may be nice, they may be moral, they may be religious, they may be well-behaved, but they'll just be nice religious idolaters. They'll, 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 they'll worship their, their family, they'll worship their job, they'll worship their country, they'll find something to worship, just like Abram. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that you go find them after service and say, why haven't you responded to the call of God, Karn children, right? Okay, well, Ligger and I are thrilled with the love in which they demonstrate for Jesus Christ. It's appropriate to their age. But they need to be called. We all need to be called. May God call you. Maybe even today, as you listen to his word, he speaks through the Bible, doesn't he? God continues to speak to us. You know, God can speak to you anytime. He says right here in 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, now the Lord said, he said to Abram, he could, he could speak to you. The, he could speak to you whenever you pick up the Bible. You understand how, what the great privilege this is to have the Bible and be able to, to pick it up and hear from God. Do you do, you do that? You, I mean, some of you, as I said, I, I hope, are planning to read through the Bible this year. And maybe before you pick it up, you would say, Lord, speak to me. God, I want to hear from you. And that God would speak to you through his word. God still speaks. Now, please understand, you're not Abram. Now, this is important for us because some people read verses like this and they do very strange things with passages like this. And they suggest as God called Abram to do this and that over there, so God is calling, he spoke to me and God is saying, okay, I need to do this and that over here. But please understand, Abram did not have the Bible. And so God would speak to him audibly. Okay, we have the Bible, and God still speaks, but I would say almost always God is going to speak through his word. 
And so beware of misusing the example of Abraham. Beware of authors like Sarah Young and her Jesus calling phenomenon, which I think is not only bad theology, but I believe it undermines Scripture itself. Abraham receives this call, a great call of grace. And what did he do with it? Well, it was a call to trust God, wasn't it? A call to trust. You notice what God said there in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. So God just shows up, and, and, and I, we don't know what Abram's doing at this time. I find this interesting. I don't know, maybe, maybe he's shearing a sheep. Maybe he's watching the game, and, and, and there it is. God, God shows up, and God speaks to him, and he says to him, Okay, Abram. Notice not a lot of small talk here, by the way. He doesn't say, Hi, I'm God. I hope you're enjoying the world I made and all that. He just says, Hey, Abram, leave. Go. Leave what? Well, leave three things, each one harder than the last. You see that there in verse 1, don't you? Go from your country, your country. Now, the, 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 the chronology is difficult here. Um, and so I, I'm going to get in the weeds for about 90 seconds. In case you're not interested in this, you could check your phone or whatever you need to do. But, but you, what, what's difficult is we think... This, this call to leave comes after verses 31 and verse 32 of, of chapter 11, but it's not. Uh, the, 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 in other words, look, look in verse 31. It says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Canaan, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. And so if you read it chronologically, it seems like they've already left Ur, on their way to Canaan, didn't quite get there, settled in Haran, and Abram receives the call in Haran. But it's not, it's not chronological. And the reason they left Ur in the first place, and even made it to Haran, was because Verse 1 of chapter 12, God called them to leave the country of Ur. The reason we know this is in Acts 7. The Bible says, The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into a land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. Now, okay, so now I'm, I'm coming out of the weeds now. And in case you're, why, why is that important? Well, it's important to realize the place in which Abram's being called to leave is his homeland. It's Ur. And in case you think, well, Ur doesn't sound like a very nice place, sounds like cavemen dragging their, their wives around by their hair, well, it's exactly the exact opposite. Um, due to extensive archaeological excavations, we know quite, bit, quite a bit about Ur. We, we've discovered, for instance, a tower that rose 150 feet. Uh, on top of that tower, by the way, uh, they worshiped the moon god. There was an, uh, uh, a worship center on the top of that tower to worship the moon. The city was surrounded by walls. It was a port city. It was the center of commerce. Uh, it was very prosperous. We know that they are proficient in gem engraving and metalworking. The land was lush. It's fertilized by two great rivers. It was abundance of corn and dates, apples, grapes, pomegranates. Uh, we, we know that the people of Ur had a sophisticated legal code that they were advanced in mathematics, architecture, and astronomy. In other words, Ur, at this time, 
5,000 years ago, if you will, was the height of civilization. That's a hard country to leave. In addition, he's told to leave his clan. Not just leave your country, but leave your kindred, you see. Well, your kindred is, is your stability. Those are the neighbors. Those are your relatives. Those are the people you've known all your life. Those are the people you've grown up with. And so Abram's being called to sacrifice acceptance, accept, uh, sacrifice comfort, sacrifice security. And then lastly, you see, he says, I want you to leave your father's house. You're to leave your family. And by the way, in this culture, family's everything. Connect, that, that's your connection. That's, that's everything. Leave your country. Leave your kin. Leave your family. That's a lot to ask, isn't it? Get up. Let, leave all this behind and let's go. Let's go. Please understand, when God calls us, by the way, he never, he never leaves you where he found you. Right? God never shows up and, and says, hey, I just want to say you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. Right? A plus. Well done. The only person I know he does that with is Jesus. They're at the baptism. I love you. You're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. For the rest of us, it's, hey, let's get moving. There's something to do. And God comes and he, he calls Abram and he says, okay, you need to leave everything that's familiar, everything that provides comfort to you, everything that makes you secure. And by the way, he's 75 years old when this happens. Listen, when I'm 75, I'm not, I'm not planning to go anywhere, right? Maybe the Virgin Islands, but other than that, that's about it, I think. Right, you're 75, the mortgage is paid off, the, the school loans are almost paid off, right? <laughs> you're settled down. You got your house, you got your spouse, you're, I mean, life is good. You know, it's 75, <laughs> no interruptions, please. And God says, no, Abram, 75, it's time to go. It shows us, by the way, that God uses older people, doesn't he? You know when you're done serving God? You know when that, when that, when that comes? It comes on the day in which you die, and then even then, I think you probably continue on into eternity. And so God calls this man. He says, leave everything that represents your security. Leave everything that you're trusting in. Why? Why do you think he asks him to leave? I think perhaps it's so he would learn that his sustenance, that his security does not come in his country, doesn't come in his family. It lies in the Lord. In other words, it is a call to trust God. To trust him. See, when God calls, he's not saying, okay, you need, he's not like tweaking his morality. Okay, let's fix a couple things in your life, right? This is, this is a whole new life. He's saying, no, you're no longer to live for your kingdom. Now you're to seek my kingdom. Now you're to seek my righteousness. Now, now you're to follow me. So leave, let's go. Now my question for you, my, my fellow Americans, is, is what, what, what would happen if God had called you like this? And what if God showed up this afternoon, you're reading his word, and you just feel a burden on your heart that God wants you to leave America? You leave, leave your country. Would you? Would you? I mean, just think about that. I mean, I, want, I'm just, I would like you to answer that question. I'm just in your heart right now. God says, okay, listen, um, that Ghana needs more healthy believers. I want you I want you in Ghana. Our brother Barry's here, serving in Guatemala. What if God said, I, I want you in Guatemala. I need you there. Would you go? Leave. Leave, God says. I think many of us would say, no, I like it here. I got everything I want. I like my country. I'm glad this is the Old Testament, isn't it? Whew. Well, 
I don't know. I do remember my Lord said, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I do remember it was Peter, wasn't it, who said, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. You see, I think this is the call for every Christian. The call for every Christian may not to be leave, to leave, but the call for every Christian is to put everything in God's hands. I put it all in your hands. The call for the Christians put everything on the table, whatever you want, wherever you send, whatever you ask, that's what I'll do because you're my God, you're my Lord, and I live for you. Right? Have you come to the point in your life where you, you've, you've come to God and said, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And, I, and that might sound like a, sim, uh, a silly question, but I think so often we already know what we want to do. And we say, okay, God, here's the plan, and a little help on the way would be great. Won't you help me here? Won't you bless me here? Won't you take care of me here? You, have you ever asked God and said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do with my children? What do you want me to do with my marriage? What do you want me to do with my career? God, what do you want me to do with my church? What do you want me to do with my money? What do you want to do with my, my skills and my abilities? You ever ask God that? God, what should I do? I want to do whatever you want me to do. I want to follow you wherever you send me. What, what, where can I go? What can I do? It's hard, isn't it? It's a call to trust. When he says to Abraham, he says, I want you to leave everything that gives you security. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your family. You got to leave and let's go. Anyone here ready to do that? Are you? Say, so, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'm, I'll be scared. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'll do it. Have you put your life in his hands? And have you said, Lord, I'll do what you ask? Maybe that would be a wonderful conversation over lunch. So you look at your spouse and say, have we done that? Are we holding back anything from God? And so God calls him. So where is he going to go? Leave. He's very specific, isn't he? Leave, leave your country. Okay, got it. Leave your kin, right? Leave your family. Gotcha. Where are we going? You know what he says there in verse 1? To the land I will show you. Hey, he doesn't tell him where. Which is how God works with us, isn't it? God never tells us where. God never shows us the destination. I don't know how many planned to be here on this day 10 years ago at this place. I certainly didn't. It wasn't my plan. I, don't, I mean, do you really think that you're going to be 10 years from now or even five weeks from now in the place where you think you're going to be? You don't think God, God, God often kind of intervenes, doesn't he? He doesn't tell him. He just says, just trust me, I'll show you. You don't need that information right now. You just need to go with me, and when the time is right, I'll show you where we're going. In other words, he says, close your eyes, take my hand, and let's go. That, my friend, is faith. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Following God means you're venturing into the unknown. It's a surrender of your will. It's a surrender of your control, and you trust him. And I, I know that is unsettling, isn't it? That's difficult for us to do. But that's what God calls us to do. It's faith. And, 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 and maybe even now there are some of you that know exactly, you know, I asked, what does God want you to do? You know what God wants you to do, and you're not doing it. 
You, you, it's right now on your heart, and you even, you even hear that sweet, silent word in your heart, and God's telling you what to do, and he's, he's telling there's a place you need to be, or there's a, there's a decision which you need to make, or there's an appointment which you need to keep, or there's a person in which you need to reach out to, and you're thinking, how's it going to go? Because I don't know about that. How's it all going to work out? And God says, don't worry about it. I'll show you when we get there. You trust me. God says to Abram, leave. He says, where? I'll show you later. Trust me. You continue through the the book. He says, God says, I'll give you a son. He says, how? God says, I'll show you later. Trust me. You get to 22, chapter 22. He says, take your son up to the mountain and offer him to me. And, And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll show you later. Trust me. Trust me. At every step, Abraham had to follow God into the unknown. That's what the Christian does. I'll go where you send me. I'll do what you command me. The Christian doesn't say, okay, well, uh, not that and not this over there. I mean, if that's what you're doing, listen. If you say, okay, God, I'll do this, but not this over there, then who's really Lord? Who's really in control? The Christian does what God commands because he trusts him. Abraham, leave. Trust me, and then what? I will bless you, and I will bless through you. Thirdly, it's a call to blessing. Look at what he says in verse two. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God blesses. God is good, and God is kind, and God is generous, and God is compassionate. God loves to bless. You don't need to manipulate God to get him to bless. You don't need to twist his arm behind his back to get him to bless you. This is, he loves to bless. This is what God does. He blesses us with friends. He blesses us with a church. He blesses us with family. He blesses us with land and legacy and wealth and health. Certainly God, these are God's blessings in our life. And so he goes to Abram. You notice he's, being, he's calling them to do something pretty radical, but then he gives them this promise. I know, in other words, I know you're worried about what you have to give up, but I will take care of you. Don't you understand? I will bless you. I'm going to bless you. And so please understand that when God calls us to sacrifice, it's only in order to give us something better. Right? When we let go of what we cherish and what we're trusting in, God's going to give us something far more wonderful. And so Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. We've given it all up to follow you. And does Jesus not say to him, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in this life, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come. Eternal life. God is a God who blesses. And he says to Abram, I'm going I'm to make you a great nation, which is quite a promise, right? Because he's 75 and his wife is barren. Okay? Number two, he says, I'm going I'm to make your name great. I'm going to give you a great name. That's surprising in light of chapter 11, verse 4. The Tower of Babel, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Right? And so God judges the people who are making a name for themselves, and then he comes to Abram just a few verses later and says, okay, I'm going to give you a great name. 
You see, God doesn't rejoice in putting us down. God delights to raise us up. What he's against is pride. What he's against is self-reliance. And so, Abram, I'm going to make your name great. And by the way, did he, did he keep that promise? 5,000 years later, we're still talking about him, aren't we? We're still studying his life. He's a great name. He's a great nation. Why? Now, this is what I get really excited about. Why? Look what he says there at the end of verse 2. So that, you see that little, that jumps off the page to me. That's a purpose clause. We, God's going to do this and this and this. Why? So that you will be a blessing. In other words, God's not picking him and saying, oh, I'll be nice to Abram. I don't really care about the rest of you all. You're a sorry lot anyways. I'm just going to pour out my blessings on this fellow over here. No, he says, I'm going to bless this person so that through him I'll bless other people. So God chose Abram that through Abram he might reach many. I'll bless you in order to bless other people. No, I think that's a radical idea. I was talking to my children last night about this over the dinner table. Now, most of us seem to live our lives, and I put me in front of the line here, seeking our own blessing. That is, we organize our lives, don't we? How to maximize blessing in our life. We Comfort, ease, fun. And we say, God, will you bless me here? And when you bless me there, and you know, I think I'll go on vacation, which I just did with my wife to Cancun, no less. Why? Because I want to be blessed. I'm going to eat this food because I want to be blessed. I'm going to take this job because I want to be blessed. And it's very easy, isn't it, to arrange your entire life seeking blessing. We're like a sponge, right? We just keep sucking up blessing, as much blessing as possible. You know, God says every once in a while, I like to squeeze you out onto others. I'd like to, through you, bless other people. God says to Abram, I'm going to work in your life. I'm going to bless you so abundantly that you become a channel of blessings to others. It reminds me of what the Lord said. He who is faithful a little is given much. God, in the sense of saying, I own everything. I needed to give it to someone. I think I'll give it to those who share. You ever, you ever think that way? You, you, ever, you, ever, <laughs> you ever wake up in the morning and say, God, I'm so excited for today. I, I just want to bless people today. You ever, you ever wake up and think, God, you, you love me so much. You've given me so much love. I, I want, will you put people in my way so I could take the love in which you have given me and I could in some way love them like you love me? You ever wake up in the morning, God says, you've forgiven me so much. I, I've received so much of your mercy. Can I have opportunities to forgive others today? Will you put some guy, just cut me off in the road and so I could just you know, pour out mercy in my heart to him? Will you, will you let me forgive others today? God, will you bring a need to, you've given me all this money. I live in this nice house here in Loudoun County and I, and I got all these cars and all the rest. God, I would really like it if today you would bring someone to me who's in need so I could take some of the money which you have given me and be a blessing to them. You ever think like that? You ever think, God, you've given me these skills, you've given me these talents, you give me this wisdom, you've given me this truth. God, I understand your truth. I don't know why you gave me a knowledge of your truth, but I know that since I have a knowledge of your truth, I should probably share it with others. I should probably take the blessing in which you have given me and bless others. I'll bless you so that you might be a blessing. So the Christian doesn't always go around and say, where's my blessing? Where's my blessing? He does, the Christian doesn't just range their life. I just want more blessing. The Christian says, I want, God, I just want to be the biggest blessing to others. How can I impact other people's lives? See, we, we let go, don't we? 
And we said, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to share this. And, and once our hands are open, you know, if you're just holding on, it's real hard to fill that hand, isn't it? When you let go and say, God, I just, whatever, whoever needs to take and whoever I can bless, I just want to take what you've given me and give it to them. And, 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 and now God can fill that hand. That's what he's calling Abraham. Leave. I want you to leave. Get, sacrifice, yes, so that I could bless you. And then I'll bless you so that you can bless others, and I'll keep blessing you as long as you keep blessing others. And listen, this is, uh, this is hard. <laughs> this is difficult. This, by the way, it requires sacrifice and requires suffering. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just so, I don't know, it just warms my heart to see Josh here this morning. I trust it does to you. And I think about the Miller family. And, uh, you know, they, they think, well, we, got, we, have, we have a husband and wife in this family who love each other. We've got four children. But there's this little boy who we've never met, Isaac, who's three years old, lives in China, has Down syndrome. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't have a mom and dad. He doesn't have brothers and sisters. He's living in a government complex. And will for the rest of his days, unless someone comes and brings them into a family. Then they take their whole family to China, spend two and a half weeks there, and then bring this child to be in their home for the rest of your life. Now, do you think that might change their life? You think that might alter things? You think that might make their life more difficult, more challenging? You think that might bring suffering into their life? Yeah. Yeah, I think it will. Things will change, won't they? Why would anybody do that? I'll tell you why. Because the Miller family, like your family, my Christian brothers and sisters, have been blessed so that you might be a blessing to others. That's why God is doing all these wonderful things in your life, to, to, so you can pour it out on others. And we can let go. Why? Because we have security in Jesus. Jesus promised to meet all my needs. Jesus is going to take care of me, so it doesn't really matter. I got all I need in Jesus. Now I just want to bless others. Where has God blessed you? And what does he intend for you to do with that blessing? He said, I'm blessing you so you can bless your children, you bless your neighbors, you bless your coworkers, you can bless the nations. Right? And, and, and a long way, someone says, listen, why did you lend me your car? Right? Or, or, or someone says to your community group, why are you guys here on a Saturday painting an elementary school room? What are you doing here? And you say, well, God has blessed us so that we can bless others. Can I tell you about him? Can I share with you what he's done for me? Can I, can I, can I tell you about his son? And what happens is God's name looks great when people start sharing what God has given them. In fact, it's even more clear there in verse 3, isn't it? I will bless you. Excuse me. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. We don't have time to flesh that out. I trust we will in the coming weeks. But look at this last part in verse 3. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, he says all the families. He's not talking about... Uh, you know, mom, dad, and children. He's talking about tribes and nations and people groups. And God is saying, through this man, I intend to bless all the different ethnicities and all the different nations on this earth. I would suggest to you that Genesis 12.3 is perhaps, well, Genesis 15.6, probably the most important verse in this whole book, but Genesis 12.3 comes, it's like 1A, 1B, whatever it is. 
This is, uh, this is huge right here. This is, as I said, God's saving plan in a kernel form. This is what Paul calls the gospel. God says, Abram, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to go with you so that you will bless the world. God chose one man and his family in order that through them he might bless all the families of the earth. This is God's saving plan to bless his creation. I'm going to use you to bless this world. By the way, it's why Hamilton Baptist Church exists, isn't it? Isn't why we're here? Not, not just to bless those here, but to bless our neighbors and to bless the nations. You know, I, I look at the close of 2018, and, and you, you, Hamilton Baptist Church gave about 40% of what we received as a church. We gave that outside our doors to plant churches and to help the poor and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ around this world. I, and this, I, this is what I do professionally. I pastor professionally. You don't. And so you may not be aware, 40% is absolutely unheard of. Most churches stretch, stretch to give 10%. Most churches say, if we could just tithe to others. Hamilton, 40% is unbelievable. And just, I'm, so, I'm so proud of what God is doing in this church. And I'm so excited how he has given us this mission's heart. And we, we far exceeded our budget last year. Well over 100000 we cook in well over $100,000 more than what we needed. And you know what we're going to do with every penny of that? We're going to send it out of these doors and out of this building, and we're going to plant churches with it, and we're going to, to spread the fame of Christ with it here in Loudoun County, and, and even to the ends of the world, that God is blessing us so that we would bless the families of the earth. This is God's plan. We don't sit on it. We don't save it for a rainy day. We trust God to provide, and we use it so that more people can be reached. I pray that would be your dream. Your community group stream, what, what can we do, God, to bless our neighbors and the nations that we would get out and seek to be a blessing? He's called to bless. He's, it's a call of blessing. It's a call to be a blessing. And lastly, fourth, it's a call to worship, isn't it? It's a call to find your delight in God. You notice what Abraham did there in verse 4. So Abram went. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him. And Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So he goes. What, what, why, why did he go to a land he didn't know? Why is he seeking these promises that seem impossible to receive? Because he believes. We've seen that. By faith, Abraham obeyed. This is why he goes. In fact, Hebrews 11.8. In fact, let's, let's memorize the very first words of that passage. Here we go. Four words. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Faith leads to obedience. Right? Faith is not agreeing with facts. Faith is seen in obedience. And so this rich man, this settled man, this older man, hears the word of God, and based on what he hears, he risks everything and obeys, and he off he goes to the land of Canaan. Now, some people have been troubled by that little phrase there in verse 5, that the people he acquired in Haran, they wonder, is Abraham a slaveholder? Well, he may be. We're not sure. Uh, slave, slavery is a very old, old sin, certainly. But some have translated that passage, not the people he acquired, but the souls he won in Haran. 
I like to think, and I hope it's true, that Abram on his way to Canaan stops in Haran, and there he's an evangelist. He's already blessing others. He's so excited about this God who called him, he's telling all his neighbors in Haran about them, and they're being one to this God as well. And off now, this big group of people head off to Canaan, as you see there at the end of verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem. Shechem's kind of right in the heart of of the promised land, just north of Jerusalem, uh, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So the Canaanites there, from what I've read, um, they, they would tell their fortune through the rustling of oak leaves. And so you even see that, fr- that reference to the Oak of Mora. I think that's an illusion that there's idolatry already in this land, just like the land of Ur. In fact, the land, the promised land is already occupied. Right? That's there at the end of verse 6, isn't it, that the Canaanites were in the land. This, of course, has got to be a test to his faith. That well, should, Am I here? Is this a mistake? Should I turn back? People are already here. How, how is God going to give me this land? No, the Lord appears to him, perhaps to strengthen him in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. He says, this, this land is, is yours. So you, think, you remember the spies, they come into Canaan and they see, well, this is our people here. So what do they do? We, let's turn back, let's go to Egypt. We can't take this land, Right? Praise God, Abram's not like those spies. God says, no, this is your land. I'm going to give it to you. And so was Abram do. You see there at the end of verse 7. So he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. He builds. Not a tower for his own name or a city for his own protection. He builds an altar for the Lord's praise. Abram had church. Right? Gathers people around. There's a public in the middle of the Canaanites. We're going to publicly worship God. All of his people, let's come together. We're going to build an altar. We're going to praise God's name. We, we know by uh, um, Genesis 14, Abraham had 300 plus fighting men when you get to Genesis 14. There's probably hundreds of people with him, and they gather together, and then what are they going to do? They're going to make God's name great. God, you promised to make my name great. You know what I want to do? I want to make your name great. I'm going to build an altar. We're all gathering together in the midst of all these pagans, and we're going to worship you. This man has come quite a distance from Babylon, hasn't he? And not just phys- uh, physically, spiritually as well. He's saying, I live for you, God. And then he moves 21 miles south, as you see in verse 8. If I could find it. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. He called on God's name. Luther translates that phrase, he preached the name of the Lord. And I kind of like to see, there's Abraham building another altar, and he's telling about God's mighty deeds. He's, he goes to this wicked place, this dark place, this, this pagan place, and he worships God. Why? Because he was a pagan in a dark place, and God showed up, and, and he realized, man, I've been worshiping the wrong gods, the false gods, just like these people. I met God. He saved me. I bet they want to know about God, too. And so he has church there, right in the middle of the pagans, just like Hamilton. Not much different. Right Here we are now for 129 years plus on this same location, a, a people of God gather together. Why? Because we want to sing about him. We want to pray to him. We want to give to him. We, we want to bless him. We want to rejoice in him. We want to think about him. We want to make God's name great. That's why we exist. That's what we're doing here. We exist to make disciples for the glory of God. 
is why we begin our week publicly identifying with God. We start our week saying, hey, we just want to remind you all and our own hearts and anybody else who cares to know that we belong to God. And he's our hope. And he's our joy. And and he's the one we live for. And we need his mercy. Hamilton Baptist Church is our altar. It's, it's, It's where we come together and we call on God's name and we learn to take his hand and close our eyes, and we say, I love you, Lord. Now you lead me. Bless me so I can bless others. Right? And we say at the beginning of this week, God, you've given me another week. We start a new week, aren't we? A new year. God, you've given us another year. You've given us a new, a, a new week. Can we not say in our hearts even now, God, use this week. Take this week. I want to use it for you in every way I can, that your name may be great. See, Abram's just worshiping wherever he goes. His life becomes about God. He moves on there in verse 9, and Abram journeying on, still going towards the Negev. It's not an accident, I think, that when Jacob returns, from, returns to Canaan from Haran, he goes to Shechem, he goes to Bethel Ai, and then he goes to Negev. It's also no accident that when the people of God are redeemed out of Egypt and they come into the Promised Land, the three main locations in which they go to are Shechem, Bethel, and Ai, and the Negev. Right? It's, it's like a, uh, Abraham going and building this altar here, building this altar there. Building, he's planting a flag. So this belongs to God. And this belongs to God. And this belongs to God. You ever, you ever done that? You ever gone to your home and you, you built that altar, if you will? You, you plant the flag and say, this home belongs to God. This is his land. And you go to your little cubicle at work and say, this this cubicle, this is God's. This is his land. You go to your car and you get ready Monday morning. And you just plant, In your heart, you plant the flag. You build the altar and say, God, this car, right in here. I can't control what's going on in there. But this car and those who are in it, we're about you, God. We're following you. This school, my desk here at school, I don't know about all everybody else, but this desk where I sit, this, this is yours. God is king here at this desk. God, uh, Abraham is, is, is planting these flags. He's claiming this land for God. In fact, I don't know if you notice verse eight. I love this phrase. He pitched his tent and he built an altar. <laughs> pitched a tent, built an altar. And my friends, I wonder if we spend so much energy decorating our tents, we're neglecting our altars. In fact, we don't live in tents, we live in castles, right? Building our castles, forgetting our worship. And some of you, some of you have lost your joy, some of you lost the, the delight you had in the Lord, and, and you were once involved in service, you were once involved in community, you were once involved in giving, and now you're all too busy for that, aren't you? Life's just got too hectic. First thing to go is the service I once did, the giving. You say, God, why don't I feel close to you? Why don't I have that joy that I had when I was younger? Well, I'll tell you, it's probably that we should spend less time building our castles and more time building altars in our castle. That we would say, this is going to be the place of hallowed ground. This is where Christ is sought, not simply comfort. And we're going to worship here, and we're going to pray here, and we're going to read God's word here, just as Abraham did wherever he went. Of course, he's no longer alive, is he? He's, he's dead. You think, what are the promises given to him? What is that promise there in verse 7? Did you see that? To your offspring, I'll give this land. Who's the offspring? That's kind of a tricky question, isn't it? His offspring can be singular and it can be plural, right? Like sheep 
Right? You see a sh- one sheep, you say, look at that sheep, but you don't look over there and you, look, you say, look at all those sheeps, right? Okay? That's not what you do. I don't think, right? Just sheep and sheep, plural, singular, offspring. You have one offspring, you have many offspring. So verse 7, is it many or is it plural? Well, Galatians 3.16 is interesting. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one who is Christ. You see, all these promises are not fulfilled in the nation of Israel. They're, of course, they're, they're a picture of the fulfillment that's coming in Jesus. This is a promise. These are all promises. There's one coming after you that's going to bless all the families of the earth. And thousands of years later, there's this man shows up. His name is Jesus. Matthew calls him what? The son of Abraham. And like Abraham, he too is called to leave his country and to leave his kin, if you will, and to leave his family and go to a dark and wicked place. And like Abram, God would make his name great and God would make him into a great nation and God would bless him so that he might bless all the families of the earth, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And by the way, he's not just the son of Abraham, ready? He's also the God of Abraham, which is why he shows up and he begins to talk people just like God talked to Abram. And he says to everyone, hey, leave your nets, leave your boats, leave your family, and come on. Let's go. Where are we going? I'll show you when we get there. Just trust me. Let's go. He's acting like Abraham's God. Close your hands and we're on our way. And we get to this wonderful passage in John 8. And all the Jewish leaders, they're arguing with Jesus. And they say, we're Abraham's offspring. Don't you understand? We're Israel. Therefore, we inherit the promises given to Abraham. This is our land. And Jesus looks at them and says, Abraham's not your father. The devil is. Which is exactly what they wanted to hear, right? The promises of Abraham aren't to you. And they say, are you greater than Abraham? Are you great? What What are you saying? Are you greater than Abraham? And Jesus says, of course. Of course I am. In fact, Abraham longed to see my day. And now they're really all upset. What are you talking about? You're not even 50 years old and you're talking like you, you know Abraham, like he's someone you know. And Jesus says to them, listen carefully. Truly, truly, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. He's not just the son of Abraham. He is the God of Abraham and which they cried blasphemy. This man claims to be God and so they killed him. They nailed him to a cross. And as he died on the cross, the son of Abraham, our Lord Jesus, pays for all of our sin. In fact, in Galatians 3, it says he redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's you and I, I think, most of us at least, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise. See, Jesus dies to pay for our sin in order to bring us into this covenant with Abraham. He redeems us, and three days later he rises from the dead that that we might become part of God's too, that we might receive the call, that we might bow our knee to the resurrected Lord in faith, just like Abram, and God would count us as righteousness, as we'll see in uh, Genesis chapter 15. In fact, the resurrected Lord then takes his followers, and he says to them what? Right before he goes to heaven, what does he say? Go 
and make disciples of all nations. That's Genesis 12.3. Through you now, I will bless all the families of the earth. Right? Close your eyes, take my hand, and let's go. We got work to do. We have people to bless. We have the kingdom to build. And maybe you come here this morning and you haven't even started that journey. Maybe for the first time today, you would hear God call you and say, God, I give you my, my sin and call for your forgiveness. Please forgive me. And I give you my life. I bow my knee to you as my king. And I just want to take your hand. And you lead. May God do that in your heart. Even now as we pray, Father, we thank you for this extraordinary passage. What great joy it is to be a child of God. We thank you for the faith in which we have that we trust in you. And yet sometimes our faith is weak. I pray that you would do a work in all of our hearts today, even now, that we would leave this place trusting in you a little bit more, maybe a lot more. And we would look around and say, God, I now, as Jesus has blessed me, I want to bless others in order to make your name great. May that be our heart. May that be our legacy. May that be what 2019 is about. Lead us, Father, that you might bless our neighbors and even the nations, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.